Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, I talked to Lori about her recent trip to New York City. She was there researching her book on Oscar Hammerstein, which is coming out in a year or two. Stick around. She'll be showing slides. We all saw City of Gold, the new documentary about Jonathan Gold. Tom, Laurie, and I talk about that. Our friend John Romano was in here to discuss one of my favorite Dickens novels, Our Mutual Friend. It's not timely, but it's fascinating. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. No, strike that. My usual co-host, because Tom Lutz is not here. The lonesome traveler is in the Philippines. But Laurie Weiner, fresh from her trip to New York, is in the studio. She's the fiction editor at LARB, as you all know. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. Lori, you just got back from New York. How long were you there? Uh, just short of two weeks. And so it was not exactly a whirlwind trip, but it was chock full. It felt like a whirlwind trip. I felt like I was racing from the second I got off till when I got home. What was the purpose of the trip? It was uh, largely to do research for my book on Oscar Hammerstein and to see a lot of shows, which is part of my research. Now, you saw Hamilton. You managed to get tickets to see Hamilton. I did. And believe the hype? Don't believe the hype. Well, I can see why it's the hit that it is in both um, a pure way and a cynical way. Should we say, by the way, parenthetically, that for those who might have been living under a rock Hamilton is uh, the relatively recent Broadway musical about uh, Alexander Hamilton and other of the founding fathers. Correct. And it's by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Who wrote a great show called In the Heights that was on Broadway a few years back. Now, was it a great show? I I thought it was terrific. Okay, because a lot of people said they could not see the genius in it and were surprised. I loved it, but that's me. Anyway, you, you you had foresight. You were saying. So... He does a couple of unbelievably simple and brilliant things that work so well. The first and most obvious is casting all of the Founding Fathers as Black or Latino men. It's incredible that no one thought of that before. It's such a great idea. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. it. You could have thought of it before. I mean, in that it, it, the time is right for this, for what he's doing. Another thing, in the lyrics, a lot of times the characters say, you know, there's more of us every day. We're growing. And so you feel that incredible momentum of people who used to be minorities kind of taking over the country and the energy that that brings and the excitement. So they won't won't be performing a medley of these songs at Trump rallies is what you're saying. Definitely not. And I do think it's interesting that at the time when we're having this debate about Hollywood and all the actors nominated were white uh, this past season, it's interesting. Partly because there's less money involved in the theater, but also Broadway and musicals, thanks to Oscar Hammerstein, does have a very long and rich history of serious social commentary since Showboat in 1927, which was the first time that black and white actors ever sang and danced together on the same stage. Now, you have a cynical theory about why Hamilton is so popular. Well, I kind of started it saying it. A, it's these packaged sentiments that are irresistible. Isn't it great to be alive right now at this moment? This is a feeling, an ecstatic feeling that the musical produces in its audience and always has, a great musical. 
But now they're just coming out and saying it. This is in the lyrics. Isn't it amazing to be alive right now? Same with The Color Purple. This is a revival. The the, the first production was not a hit, but this is a very, very smart re- revival. And you saw this as well on the Saw Centra. this as well. This is directed by the British guy, John Doyle, who's a really terrific director, also in the lyrics. I've never felt as alive as I do right now. I've never felt as young as I do right now. And in a way, I feel like musicals have gotten so savvy about what makes a musical uh, an ecstatic experience that they've almost started packaging it to a degree that feels uh, a little commercial and packaged. But isn't that the idea of Broadway musicals these days? They have to justify the ticket price, and so they need to deliver something. Yeah, but are you good enough to deliver it without hitting it on the nose? And uh, I think these are shortcuts. They happen to work in these two shows, particularly in Hamilton, which is a better show than The Color Purple, much better show, um, because there's so much talent in this show, um, both on the stage and behind the stage. Why do you think Hamilton has struck the chord that it has its popularity is is it's truly unprecedented it seems at least in the in the modern I era. think that the only precedent and I'm not just saying this because of Astor, Oscar Hammerstein but through my research the only precedent in terms of popularity is Oklahoma which is now 1943 almost, so 70 odd years ago at right. this point so you could not get a ticket to Oklahoma it wasn't a joke it wasn't like Mormon, Book of Mormon, where for nine months you couldn't get a ticket, and then if you were smart, you could get a ticket. It was like you could not. Everyone in the country wanted to be in that theater, and the reason is the same for Oklahoma and for Hamilton. It's about this country. It's about what is the future of this country, what defines this country, and it touches on that. It's a tremendous high. You saw the new Fiddler on the Roof as well. Now, does that embody the the contemporary Broadway aesthetic you're alluding to? Well, it's so interesting in the, the way that the director, Bart Shear, opens up the show to a modern experience. And um, I'm not giving anything away. I'm not giving away a confidence by saying that Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics and is the only person still alive who created the musical— was very much against Bart opening it up the way he did. This is how he opened it up. He starts the play with uh, Danny Burston, who plays Fiddler, being dressed in contemporary garb, going to the village of Anatevka as a tourist with a tourist book to look at where his grandparents came from. And then at the end of the musical, he returns to the stage as someone in contemporary dress and joins the line of immigrants being forced out of Anatevka so that it becomes about the contemporary refugee situation in a very smart, unobtrusive way. But it really makes you feel, oh, my God, this is still happening. This is happening right now to different people. And it's very powerful and very smart. Also, if you like me, you... You probably know every intonation of every line in the original cast of Fiddler on the Roof. You know how every line is delivered in the songs and in the dialogue. None of that is in this Fiddler on the Roof. It's a very... Bart knows how to blow the dust off of a text and say, look, this is still relevant to us today. And the way the people delivered the lines in 1964 felt fresh in 64. But if you did... That same delivery today, it would feel phony and old-fashioned. It's just a matter of reality shifting. And he gives us a very contemporary reading of those lines, and it makes it feel very fresh. And Oh, and another thing he does, if I may, is he shows 
how tragic and difficult that regime was that Tevye is so sad about throwing off. In other words, he makes you see that the tradition that is leaving these people was filled with with bad things for women. You know, it was extremely patriarchal society. How does he how does he highlight that in the production? I'm glad you asked that. When you listen to Matchmaker, Matchmaker from the original cast album or from the movie. As I have. It's played as a kind of a comic, upbeat thing. It's like, oh, aren't they adorable there? But they're dreaming about their futures and they're, uh, you know, getting it married and carry on these beautiful traditions. In this new production. They're on Tinder. <laughs> yes. They're, they're swiping left. No, they're terrified because it's fucking terrifying. They're good. They're, they have no say in who they marry. They don't know who they're going to wind up with. And he makes that very clear in the way he stages it. So when are you going back to New York? Probably in the summer. And when are we going to see this Oscar Hammerstein book? The end of 2017 or the beginning of 2018. Is there a title? Beautiful Morning. I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Seth. Your eyes echoing for I'm Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner here on the LARB Radio Hour 90.7 FM KPFK. With a sad lament, my dreams have faded like a broken melody. While the gods of love look down and laugh at what romantic fools we mortals be. About a year ago, Tom, Laurie, and I saw the Jonathan Gold documentary, City of Gold, about the popular Los Angeles Times food critic. We thought it was pretty terrific, and now that the movie has been released, we are going to run that segment. So here it is. Between 1982 and 1984, I lived in Los Angeles. I I had moved out here from New York, and I came with a very naive idea of what the city was supposed to be, what a city was supposed to be, which was modeled on some 19th century European idea with a city center uh, from which things would emanate. And Los Angeles was very much not that city. It was a very different kind of city. And I went back really without ever understanding it. Two years later, I went running back to New York because I couldn't I couldn't figure out a way to unlock Los Angeles. And I moved back out here with my family in the late 90s and experienced the city in a very different way. And one of the reasons uh, for that was my encounter with a book by Jonathan Gold, who I only knew as, at that point, the restaurant critic for, I believe, the LA Weekly. That's right. Uh, I got a copy of Counterintelligence and began exploring the city with this book as my Bible. And through Jonathan Gold, I was led to the Chinese restaurants of the San Gabriel Valley and Little India out in Artesia and to rib joints in Van Nuys. And he opened the city up like a flower in a way that I just had no experience of prior to that. And he he became... uh, this culinary Virgil, but also a cultural Virgil for my wife and for me. And so he's had a profound effect on the way we have experienced the city. And now, Lori, I know you, there's a new movie about Jonathan Gold that's coming out this year. And you, not only do you know him, but you're in the movie. I am. And I, you know, there's, there's whispers of Oscar nomination for me. And we should say, first she, she of all, is so good be- before wow. we get to your performance, we should say the movie is called City of Gold. City of Gold. Well, of course, every, like everyone in L.A., we had heard of Jonathan Gold and we followed his work. And he's kind of a hero 
because he's writing about the city in the way no one else was. But he, we became friends uh, very quickly. He's very, very easy to become friends with. He's very funny and strange. Um, I remember uh, one time I was having lunch with him. I was reporting on a dinner I had had the night before at a food writer's house, and he said, "What did she serve?" And I said, "Scallops." And she said, "He said, how did she do them?" And I said. Uh, I think it was there was a balsamic vinegar glaze, and there's kind of a, a beat. And he says, balsamic vinegar is the refuge of scoundrels. Tom, he's he's unique as a critic, isn't he? I suppose so. I mean, he's the only food critic to ever win a Pulitzer. That's you know, so there's there's something unique there. Uh, I think he do, he goes about his business differently than than well when than you did as when you were a theater critic, Larry. Uh, well, one of he does many things that differently than most critics. I was a theater critic, which is a very theatrical environment and in which you're expected to be able to write a great rave and a terrible scathing pan that's funny. And you have to be able to hit those two notes. That is not in Jonathan's world. He doesn't care about raves and pans. And in fact, he very rarely pans anything. He knows that someone's business is at stake and you know, if it's a very large restaurant chain, who cares? But he tends to write about individually owned restaurants, and he has a great deal of empathy and compassion as a person, and that comes out in his writing, which would be boring in a critic, except for that he's such a fine writer that he transcends these categories that we usually look for in critics. And, and also, if, you know, if, if he doesn't like it, he doesn't write about it, right? Um I don't Often. think I don't think he I don't think he commits to writing about a restaurant until he's decided there's something worth writing about. Well, the Jonathan Gold portrayed in the movie is purely an enthusiast, which is fantastic mm. in the context of what he's doing, which is going out to often very very out of the way places that uh, readers of the publications he's writing for ordinarily would not find themselves in, and he he opens up these places to a vast readership. Right, but just imagine if you had a theater critic or a book critic who only wrote good reviews, you would think of them as a shill. You wouldn't even read them. It would seem, you know, a waste of your time. But he does something, he brings it onto a different level, and it's always valuable to uh, but, read but it. But also, uh, would you, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, when you think about what he's writing about, you use the word shill when a, when a critic is pumping something, which I think is, is a great verb, actually. And you could say about him, well, he's, he's shilling for a Laotian restaurant right. on Pico Boulevard, or, oh, the way he's such a shill for the Burmese <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles. And I think that there's something else going on in this film that's, that's for me, more interesting, which is the question of what criticism is for. And a guy comes in from the James Beard Foundation and says... If you go to China, look at China in the 12th century, look at France in the 18th century, there are, there's food, but there's also writing about food. There's thinking about food. And it's that writing that transforms fuel into art, right? It transforms food into cuisine. And it's the same thing happens in every art form. That is, criticism is something that has a positive effect on the working of the art itself. And, you know, when Tom talks about why he started the L.A. Review of Books, he often talks about the um, training ground for critics that newspapers and magazines served as for so long. They paid for theater reviewers to go to the theater every night and to d develop a kind of expertise that you don't see so so often these days. Um, right, and they paid for Jonathan Gold to eat, uh, you know, four to five meals a day, every day for the last 25, 30 years. And of course, there's no substitute for that kind of expertise. 
I'm Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner here on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 FM, KPFK. A few weeks ago when Tom was here with us and not running around the Philippines, our friend John Romano came in, a uh, Dickensian and a screenwriter, to discuss one of my favorite Dickens novels, Our Mutual Friend. This is that conversation. John Romano is an A-list Hollywood screenwriter. He's written for many, many television shows you have heard of and enjoyed, most recently Hell on Wheels. He has a new film coming out this fall. It is an adaptation of the Philip Roth novel American Pastoral. Which My is favorite ta- Philip Roth. Which has taken years and years to get to the screen, but it's coming out soon. John Romano, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you, Seth, Laurie, Tom. Nice to be here. You know, one of the things I didn't mention in my effusive introduction is that you are a Dickens scholar. You taught at Columbia. Uh, you wrote a book about Dickens, mm. and uh, that's why we're having you in here. Recently, you and I had breakfast. You said, Seth, you have to read Our Mutual Friend. This is a very important book, this Dickens novel, for you to read. Why did you recommend Our Mutual Friend oh, well, to Well, can I, can, I, can, I per- can I give the personal reason? Absolutely. You were embarking on a novel. Unlike your other novels, in terms of scope of New York, of now, of many classes and layers, you describe the largeness of your appetite for what this novel could be. And, and Army to a Friend is the great novel of the city, the first appearance of what we would recognize as a city. All classes are simultaneously present, uh, are tied together through one kind of flimsy little plot thing. But uh, as in the title, Our Mutual Friend, and I thought that you should see the master at work. I mean, this this is the great American, But, but the I have a question for you. British but, but, novels. but Dickens does that in other novels, right? N- not to this extent. And he, Well, he's never not looking at London. He's never not seeing more than one side of London. But Army and Your Friend, the first, I think I have this count right, the first eight chapters, he visits seven totally separate worlds. In the first 12 chapters, he visits 11 totally separate worlds. Interesting. He, and he links them. And his point is, it's that urban experience, like a subway. You enter the subway, you know, behind the mayor's house in, uh, in, in Cecil neighborhood, and, you, and you, you get out, and you're among the Bohemians in Soho, and you, or you're in, on the West at Lincoln Center. And, and there's that feeling of being shunted, which a century later we were calling montage. And by the way, he wasn't happy about it. I mean, I think the starting point for this point that I'm making is is how he began you know, he began life as a journalist and right away aside from doing assignments from the editor they could see what he did best which is to wander to a new part of London and describe what he saw and it was always a mix of imagination and he loved finding crazy things like a, a seller of old clothes and he would do and he did a story he's 21 years old he would do a story in which the clothes talk to each other these various used clothes of course some of the owners are dead and some and they have all sorts of things to say but he's looking at a real place so you both recognize this world you're wandering through every day and also you're experiencing what he called the romantic side of familiar things the wacko side of his imagination it's just that in those, and, and that becomes sketches by bows and he's overnight sensation and he does that right through his career but in a, a way our mutual friend which is his last completed novel he revisits the guy wandering the city and looking around at different places and wondering what's worming them together only by now guys he's really unhappy with what he sees the city and our mutual friend sucks to use a technical 
term. You know, the opening scene, you think, when you think of Dickens, most people use the term Dickensian. You think of cobbled streets and, you know, cute orphans and, and things. But I also but, think of... But of, you begin of, in a of, river, uh, sludge and dead bodies, and then cut to a brilliantly lit Nouveau Riche East End Avenue uh, uh, dinner party. John, the river in Our Mutual <clears throat> Friend is its own character. In a way, would you talk about that? Well, it, it runs the way the Thames runs through London. It underlies everything that happens. It, it's blood and mud and ooze and dirt and things. It's garbage. And remember that the whole financial fortune on which our mutual friend is based is a fortune of a garbage collector. The dust heaps, dust is the British word for garbage. So behind all these beautiful houses, there are mounds of dust, which are very, very valuable even today. And the river is allied to the blood that flows through people. Everyone drowns. I mean, Rayburn almost drowns. Rogue Riderhood almost drowns. Harmon, they think, has drowned, whoever he is. So it's underneath everything. And, you know, this was really important to T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot adored this book, and for a time, the epigraph to The Wasteland was a line from A Mutual Friend, and it's a really odd, obscure line, which is, he do the police in different voices. That's, that was actually going to be the title of The Wasteland. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. At one point, yeah. Okay. And, and, and if you think about it, The Wasteland or Proof Rock is this rotting modern city Rotting, multifarious, wealthy, as in proof rock, you have both old men hanging out of windows, smelling bad, and you also have the society ladies coming and going, talking about Michelangelo. So that's that same simultaneity of class. And Eliot was so aware that in Our Mutual Friend, Dickens completed, not began, but completed a turn to a really dark, fucked up vision. So would you say that he critiques the system by subterfuge in a way? Because he doesn't overtly critique the system. Really? Uh, well, he, he, he doesn't put that speech in anyone's mouth. No, because no one has that, that sort of Olympian point of view, including the novelist. But just in the act, Seth, I would say, as, speaking as a novelist, just in the act of wanting to create 11 worlds in 12 chapters, you're saying, ain't no way to make sense of this. And, and by the way, just on a formal aesthetic level, this is a Rauschenberg. This is not an Impressionist painting. This is, I only can say what I want to say to you by making a mess. And the book is a mess. It's a pile of dust. It's a pile of garbage. Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I do have to talk to you about the women in Dickens and in this novel, particularly. Yeah. And this novel, I was disgusted by a woman that I know is he approves of thoroughly, and that is Bella Wilfer, who is basically the heroine of the book. And the only difference between Bella and uh, perfect, young, beautiful women like Little Dorrit, Lucy, Manette in um, Tale of Two Cities, in Tale of Two Cities yeah. Agnes in Copperfield. He, there, there's a series of these perfect, beautiful women. And what makes them perfect is that they're completely serving the interest of the man. They are completely self-serving. They have no self-interest at all. And that's what makes them perfect in his eyes. Well, you're certainly right in this, in this last thing you said. I don't like your list, but I, I think what your point, that to be good as a woman is to be self-sacrificing and care only about others, is the woman problem in Dickens. However, among the people you named, for instance, was Agnes and David Copperfield. That is really... Uh, Bella's nothing. Bella's, Bella's a failure. Lizzie is fantastic. And why is Lizzie fantastic? Because L Lizzie's utterly self-sacrificing. Yeah, Lizzie in, in what novel? Lizzie in Our Mutual Friend. Lizzie Hexham in Our Mutual Friend. 
she is a is a girl who we see from the very first page, a young woman, who f- helps her father drag bodies out of the river, saves money to put her brother through school, and is taken on at first for sexual purposes by Eugene Rayburn. That's the threat is he's going to exploit her. And then eventually he falls in love with her. Her power is the power of that past, present, and future are always simultaneous from her. There's one of the beautiful, scene, great scenes in Dickens is Lizzie in front of the fire. She has this thing she does. She has no television. She, has, she doesn't. She's illiterate. She looks in the fire, and in the little hollows and flamings up in the fire, she, she sees, she says, pictures. And she tells her brother these pictures of their past, of what's going on now. And, what, well, and she has this sense of, of the continuity of time. She has an innate grasp of that, which endows her with moral force and responsibility. Still self-sacrificing, still guilty of what you're saying. But to you know, Bella, Bella is not a fly on that kind of power. And Agnes, let me say this about Dickens' women, because it's a point I've made before, but I, I find it useful for people to think about it this way. David goes through two women. One is Dora. What a doll. We could cast her next door at Sunset Gower in any surfing movie. She bounces around and she has, I, I think, a, an adorable bottom. She's just everything she should be. If you don't have a brain in the other, does she? And she dies because David has a real life to live. And she is inadequate to that. So she dies of being um, effeminate, uh, which is a terrible thing to have in a woman. Now, but then he marries and goes to a woman who is charmless, plain, committed to her father's career, but to uncovering the financial misdoings of her father's career, thinks David is stupid and unready to be a husband, the man in her life, and only by deserving Agnes can David become a man. That seems to me a deep portrait, deeper than the the Brontes at their best, who have, I think, the thinnest version of what it is to be a woman in Victorian England, as so many of the Victorian women novelists do. George Eliot accepted. No one's near her. And and also, you don't mention Esther Summerson, which I think is one of the great creations. Okay, but I would also argue that Esther Summerson is completely, uh, will abnegate herself. Identify the novel. Bleak House. Uh, Bleak House. Um, She's she's a very, very sweet young woman, and then she gets, what is the disease she gets, and it disfigures her. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, uh, we'll we'll think of it. But she continues to be... uh, And continues to be loved. But the point is the novelist and her lover love her as much or more when she is not pretty. This is Dickens spitting in the eye of the Victorian ideal of womanhood. But, and as for self-sacrifice, here's, I don't entirely disagree. Esther was written by, this is the Jefferson had slaves argument. You know what I mean? He's a man of his time. There's only so much we can expect of him, but try fighting for black rights without using Jefferson's language. (laughs) And in the same way, uh, try seeing through the Victorian porcelain doll business without characters like Esther or Agnes at hand. Dickens scores major blows for liking women for being real strong adult people. And that's not to the Victorian taste. You're you're absolutely right. You, it, Dickens is so big that you can't minimize him or anything that he did. Or his sympathies for people who are suffering, including women. But yeah. I have to say that his reverence for women who are completely unself-serving and the kind of promise of you will be loved if you have no concern whatsoever for yourself. I think you make a good point. Is troubling. All right, John, thanks for coming into the LARB Radio Hour. Oh, I hope everyone reads Our Mutual Friend, but thank you so much for having me. You know, when, when you love things like this, you, you, you're waiting for someone to ask yeah. you, can we talk about Our Mutual Friend? You bet. Will what you, shall I wear? Will you, 
Will you come back to talk about more 19th century literature? <laughs> you anytime. All right. Great. Our thanks to John Romano. Thanks to our producer on Moral Conscience, Jerry Gorin. Our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano. Czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. This is a good time to thank them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. For Lori Weiner and the Lonesome Traveler, Tom Lutz, this is Seth Greenland. You have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks for that, and we will see you next week.